Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi everybody, welcome. As always, the Dan Snow's History Hit. It's that time of the week, everybody. It's that time of the week when we revisit our archive. We crack open the ancient oak door. We tiptoe down the creaking wooden floors. Great shelves covered in dusty manuscripts either side of us. And we lift out one particular item from the archive. And it is a previous episode of this podcast. It is an episode that we recorded two years ago on this very special day because the representation of the People Act 1918 was passed on the 6th of February 1918, 103 years ago this week. That act increased the male electorate in the UK, the number of men that could vote, from 5.2 million to 12.9 million, enfranchising millions and millions of working class men for the first time. And it allowed for the first time in national elections in the modern era, women to vote, or around eight and a half million women, two in five adult women. There was an age and a property threshold for women. It's obviously a hugely important moment for the British constitution. It was a hugely important moment, the centenary, three years ago. And we had the wonderful actor, activist, and historian Kate Willoughby on to talk about Emily Davison and that centenary of the representation of the People Act, and also what still needs to be done. Every week we put out an old classic, and it's worth remembering that we have several hundred episodes of this podcast stretching way back to 2015. They're all only available on History Hit TV. It's our digital history channel. We've got hundreds of podcasts on there. We've got hundreds of history documentaries on there. It's just been relaunched. People seem to be loving the new version they're watching on Roku and all these other platforms. So thank you for all that feedback. Please head over to historyhit.tv and subscribe now. Thank you very much. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy the wonderful Kate Davis talking about the remarkable Emily Davis. Kate, we're sitting here in your HQ. You've got cuttings and press reports and lots of wonderful things all around us. It feels like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a historian study. It feels like a political action study to me. Uh, yeah, well, basically, I'm drawing on, on the past and the legacy of the, the suffragettes. Obviously, I, I put one or two things out for you today. And it's very much um, one of the things that I do with my project, Emily Matters, is for Emily Davison's birthday, Emily Davison, the suffragette, uh, which is now International Day of the Girl. We have a birthday tea for her and we broadcast that live uh, and we get people involved from all over the world. Uh, and it's all about celebrating 
Emily herself, but also equality, social justice, access to good education um, for, for all. Did you come at this as an actor, as a historian, as an activist? How did you how did you become how did you build this incredible campaign? It's all by accident. Um, well, I'm an, an actor-writer sort of by, by training. Uh, I've always loved history. When I was a little girl, my grandparents would drag me around to museums and castles until I enjoyed it, um, which I do very much now. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> um, and then I wrote this play called To Freedom's Cause about Emily Davison, but not just about her, about other real women, uh, mainly working-class women from the North, who helped to get the right to vote, because it certainly wasn't just one woman that got... Uh, the right to vote for all women in the UK. Yep, and of course this year, 1918 is anniversary. We're going to come on to that in a second. But let's talk about why did you choose Emily? Why why her? And talk to me a little bit about who she was. Yeah. Um, well, I was doing some research in the Women's Library uh, when it was actually near Oldgate, and I came across the letter that her mother sent her, which was the day after the Derby um, protest that Emily made in 1913. And that's a very famous protest. You may have seen um, the videos on YouTube. So this grainy footage of this woman at the Derby who sort of dips under uh, the railings and stops. It was the king's horse and it was a huge, huge thing right in front of the cameras. Um, And it was the letter that Margaret, her mother, had written. And she said that you've given your whole heart and soul to the cause and it's done so little in return for you. And then she signed it with oceans of love, your sorrowful mother. Now, that's just an extract from it. But as you can imagine, it was full of emotion, anger, love. And it really intrigued me, this sort of relationship I could tell between two very strong women. And I could sort of identify because myself and my mum, we sort of, you know, quite strong personalities and clash. And I really just sensed something. And that really, that's sort of what drew me in to Emily's story. And by the time Emily's mother had written that, was she dead? No, uh, because she died four days later. So I believe it was read to her, but she never regained consciousness. I, you've got to ask now that you've raised it, uh, how is your mother proud of you? Um, or does she think you've done all this for so little? <laughs> um, she, well, I think she is, she is proud, yes. She's a Yorkshire woman, so she doesn't necessarily always say it. But yeah, I think she is. <laughs> well, if you're listening, just send, drop your daughter a line. Tell her you're proud. Um, Right. So uh, tell me more about Emily's career. What kind of background? Where where, where did she start from? Well, she was actually born in in London, in Blackheath, into a relatively affluent family. Her father was a lot older uh, than her mother. And so she grew up, she had private tutors, and then she went to um, school in, in Blackheath. Uh, she went on to be a student at Royal Holloway, but it was there, um, partway through her studies, that her father died. And it turned out that he really didn't, well, he didn't leave anything. He had quite a large family before he'd married Emily's mum and uh, there was very little left for the for the newer family. So her mother had to move back to Northumberland and Emily tried to stay at Royal Holloway but she couldn't afford it. So suddenly from being really quite affluent, she had nothing and she had to then go and find work as a, as a tutor but she never gave up on her education and she went back to it and she actually ended up going to St Hughes in Oxford and graduated. Well, she didn't graduate but she did get a first. Because at that point 
women weren't allowed to graduate? That's right, yes. Um, so, yes, that was another injustice at, at that time, something we take for granted today. But really, everything was stacked against women at, at, at that time. It wasn't just, just the vote, but the vote was a very symbolic and important step towards equality. And I think, really, Emily's sort of background, she was... Um, known to be um, very sensitive to others as well, even though she'd had quite a, a wealthy start. Because of what happened to her, uh, I think it really opened her eyes. And this is why she was interested in the, the women's suffrage movement. And she joined the militant suffragettes in 1906. Did, what was her journey like to direct action to militancy? I mean, had she, had she tried suffragism and, and felt it wasn't getting anywhere? As far as I'm aware, it was really, I think it was uh, Mrs. Pankhurst, Emmeline Pankhurst, that really caught her attention because she was a great speaker. She was really inspired by her. And I think it was, there was something about the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, that they were really creative. Um, a lot of the, the leaders were very educated. Emily was educated. So I think their arguments, their creativity, really interested her the fact that they they'd had enough it had been going on for decades and decades uh, and they just decided to to step it up to speak up more but of course the more they spoke up then the establishment pushed back and then that's when things really escalated why why did we see the the call for women voting uh, growing by the end of the 19th century. What, what's what's going on with, with the role of women in society? Is it, is it about them becoming more educated, enjoying more economic rights? And why, why, did, why did this sort of, this tide reach such a high, high point? Well, I would say it's a number of, of, of factors. I think you're right, there was better education, certainly for middle-class girls. Um, and I think it was just a case that there were certain women out there who, who decided... Um, maybe as individuals, but they started to come together, that really it was time, particularly as um, New Zealand, for example, women had been given the vote and the world didn't end. And it was obvious that this was a, a step. Um, and these bright, intelligent women just said, well, enough's enough. It's time that we, we got the, the right to vote. But also moving it towards um, equality. It wasn't just about the vote. So was it about you know, uh, political, social, economic rights as well? Yes, Yes, very much so. One thing, because um, I think there's a bit of a, a myth that all the suffragettes were just about the vote and just about the vote for some women, women like us, as it were. Um, that wasn't the case. Some of the leadership perhaps were, but women like Emily Davison, uh, Mary Lee, who's much lesser known now, but she, she features into Freedom's Cause and she was from Manchester, working class suffragette. Um, there were a lot of women who were fighting for the vote as the first major step really to equality. But one thing I should say on the vote as well, there was a letter in the Evening Standard the other day and it it did point out that in local elections, um, some women did actually have the vote. So it wasn't necessarily the first right to vote, but obviously it's more a higher level when it's uh, national elections. So talk to me about Emily's journey to militancy. Uh, how, was she frustrated by just the, the, the feeling that they weren't getting anywhere with going through conventional protest? Um, yes. And also on a personal level, she'd had to leave her education. She'd gone into... Um, being a, a governess and then a, a teacher and really just not having the opportunities. She was really aware about equal pay. Of course, that's, you know, highly topical at the moment. Uh, and she was campaigning and writing about that as well, as I say, not just the vote. Uh, but I think really just seeing that there were so many bright, capable women out there who just 
didn't get the opportunities uh, to use their, their skills and were being held back. And what form did her militancy take? Well, she was a very creative person and... Um, in fairness to the organisation, the WSPU, um, they were quite regimental. Uh, they sort of needed, to, you know, they had the top HQ and they directed things. But Emily, um, she was very, very imaginative. And so she started to perhaps do other things like she was the first suffragette who um, put uh, burnt some of the, the post boxes, put, you know, um, some of the post boxes that were set, set alight. Uh, she also is rumoured to have set fire uh, to a new um, house that Lloyd George was having built. Uh, it must be said, though, that with the really quite more extreme actions, the suffragettes were very um, careful to do these things when people weren't there. So it wasn't, they weren't sort of trying to burn a house down with people in it. Um, I'm not saying that was still a good thing, but they were mindful of, of, of that. But it was really uh, the fact that they, they were trying to keep the, the issue of women's right to vote in the news because there were lots of other things like the Irish question at that time that were vying for, for attention. And as it always happened, there was a feeling of, oh, be patient, sisters, and they kept being put back. So uh, it wasn't something that was taken up overnight. It was very much that um, it had gone on for decades. And to be honest, I think without the mix of perhaps more militancy, um, not that we'd still be waiting now, but I don't know if you know what I mean. We might still be waiting for the vote now. OK, so that's interesting because that's now becoming more of a topic because we're seeing statues, a statue going in Parliament Square of someone who was very obviously not a suffragette but was a suffragist, so the women who were using conventional and peaceful and legal methods to get the vote. Where It's become a bit of a thing, and it probably shouldn't be because obviously there's a sliding scale. Do you, do you, think, do you think that the violent direct action... Uh, accelerated the, the process or did it delay it, as some people are saying? I think in a way it, it's a bit of both. Um, as I say, if, if they just stuck to the um, sort of lobbying and letter writing uh, under the radar kind of campaigning, uh, I think it would have been decades further on uh, and that really there needed to be some kind of ag agitation. So it was a com combination of the two and I there is, I think at the moment, there's a feeling of was one better than the other. Uh, and I think you really needed, needed both. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about, so Emily is, uh, Emily Davison is taking direct action. She famously tries to burn down Lloyd George's house, which is, always makes me laugh. Uh, and then, I don't know why. And then, um, and then most famous probably now for, for this, the final epic uh, run at the King's Horse. Uh, was, that, was that a suicide mission or, or was it a terrible accident? Well, because I wasn't there, uh, and none of us were, we won't know for absolute, absolute certain. However, um, it looks like it was something that was a last-minute thing. It's, um, it is uh, looking at the the evidence. It seems that she was planning to take the the colours of the WSPU uh, to the paddock where the King's Horse is being paraded. But it is rumoured that she was spotted by somebody because she was a very famous suffragette and she'd gone on her own as well um, to sort of... And she wasn't wearing anything sort of suffragette-like. It was all hidden inside her inside her coat. So it looks like she kind of had to do a plan B and she was watching the horses go by. She went to Tattenham Corner and she was marking off the, the race card. Uh, and then, obviously, as you can see on the clip, she nips under um, under the railings. And I, she obviously was going for the king's horse, but whether it was chance or, you know, that she did actually stop the king's horse. But one thing as well, I think that language matters because still there's that old thing where people say she threw herself under the horse. She obviously didn't when you watch the footage. It's it's quite chilling, actually, because she's just walking towards the horse and she reaches up to stop it. Uh, one theory, um, which is um, Irene Cockcroft, who's a women's suffrage um, expert, she feels that perhaps the paper in her hand rather rather than being a, a scarf, um, was actually a petition to the king. And it was a very symbolic gesture. So because if, when you see it actually fall to the ground, it doesn't fall like a piece of silk. It, it does fall like a, a, a card almost. So that, that is potentially what it was. Again, very symbolic. And she did obviously choose that the cameras were just opposite. She was very, very savvy about using new media. And had she and other suffragettes been here today, they would have been all over social media. What was the impact of that accident? Did, was it talked about everywhere and did it, 
encourage? Do you think it helped or, or hindered, or what? What impact do you think it had? Well, it was a huge, huge impact. Um, there were obviously those people who said, um, in fact, the, the Queen had said, oh, that horrid woman, uh, when she wrote to the jockey Herbert Jones afterwards to see how he was. He was absolutely, he was injured, but he, you know, with no um, long-term ill effect. Um, and the horse was fine as well. I know that bothers people. Um, but there were, so there were some people who were very cross and it kind of fueled that, you know, suffragettes were irresponsible and perhaps not um, questioned their, their sanity. But then other, other voices, um, I think, was proved by the turnout of people who came to the huge um, gathering in, in London where her um, coffin was, was paraded and then went the uh, service for her funeral well it was the memorial service really um, in Bloomsbury and then of course she was taken up to Morpeth where she's buried and again thousands of people turned up um, who were not shouting and screaming you know bad things it was there were one or two voices I believe um, one voice in London was three cheers for Herbert Jones uh, which does feature into Freedom's Cause uh, so there was a little bit of opposition but most people I think were very moved that um, she felt so strongly uh, that women should have the right to vote, that uh, that she lost her life. But I wouldn't say it was deliberate um, suicide, but she knew the risks. You've um, received extraordinary accolades uh, and you've launched an entire campaign, Emily Matters, but To Freedom's Cause was your play that you wrote. Yeah. What was it, what, what do you think, is, what, what are the modern audiences really enjoyed the most and gained the most, do you think, from your performances? Um, one of the main things that came out, and I've taken it to all sorts of different places, whether it's theatres, community halls, or I, I took it to um, Downview Prison as well. Um, and it was the mother-daughter relationship, which is where it all began, with that letter. Um, and there are scenes with with mother, mother and daughter in Northumberland, and they clearly absolutely love each other, but the mother, Margaret, is really struggling that her daughter is passionate about the campaign but she's coming back battered and bruised and you know physically weaker each time so there's a whole lot of love but at the same time um she's sort of fighting in herself to try and understand and to actually try and persuade emily to to pull back but emily is very uh, loyal to her friends in the suffragette movement they were um the thing about the suffrage and i believe the suffragist movement um it was women coming together and that's really an element in the play it's not just about one woman uh, it's lesser known suffragettes like mary lee um connie ellis from newcastle uh, and other women as well that came together and also with male allies we mustn't forget that um to eventually push and of course 1918 uh, we had the first group of women that got the right to vote in, in uh, UK elections. Yes, let's talk about 1918. Um, do, do you think, this is one of those really boring kind of A-level questions, but did, did, did the decision to give the vote to women in 1918, did that, was that about the pre-war campaigning or was that about what had happened during the war and the huge societal changes that had gone on? Well, obviously because... Um, all men got the vote. I think that was very much about the war effort, obviously, for, for the men. But for the women, there was definitely a feeling that militant campaigning would begin again. So I think it was a case of uh, a bit of pragmatism to perhaps ward off the militancy starting up again. I do think that had definitely had a role to play. But of course, it wasn't for all women. And I was looking at some of the anti-suffrage um, 
publications and they were absolutely um, horrified because there would be more women voters than men. So it was a gesture, but of course it was another 10 years before all women got the right to vote and obviously that is is the big one. However, this um, this year it's a very important anniversary. It's that first major step. Yeah, we should say the representation of the People Act 1918 so that the votes massively extended out to what you might describe working class men. Yeah. Uh, I guess you know they'd fought enough trenches. <laughs> Difficult to deny that, but it's one of the great extensions of franchises. But then women. Now let's be let's be clear. Not all women. It's women over thirty. Yes, and they had to meet certain property qualifications as well. So it wouldn't be you know the working class uh, suffragists and suffragettes. They wouldn't be included. Uh, and so obviously campaigning did still continue, but the militancy did did stop. Uh, and. Was it when the politicians were justifying it? I mean, was it still very contentious in 1918? Or was it one of those, everyone was just war weary, had the women coming into the factories, the women helping out with the war effort, had that convinced even the most conservative people that women deserved the vote? Well, I think there probably was still some opposition. However, I think the public mood um, had changed. So, as I say, it was quite pragmatic. It was only certain women uh, that were allowed allowed the right to vote. And I think it was also, um, again, not saying they were worried about the militancy, but to sort of put it on the war effort. So I think that's why there was a focus on that. But I do think um, on a sort of practical side, I think the, mil- the, the threat of militancy, I think, would, would have focused minds as well. A um, hundred years on, how do you think we should be thinking about... 1918 and the suffrage movement generally? Um, Well, the work I've been doing with um, Emily Matters, uh, which I am sort of developing as as a legacy project, it's actually at the moment um, we're sort of uh, adapting it slightly. So it's at a um, formative stage at the moment. Um, But what I've found speaking with young voters or young potential voters is this kind of feeling that, well, my voice doesn't really matter, it doesn't count, I don't count... Um, and so the work that I've been doing has been drawing on the legacies of women like Emily Davison, who fought so hard for us to have the right to vote. And I sort of ask, if it was if it meant so little to have that right to vote, do you think that you know suffragists, but particularly suffragettes, would have pushed so hard and the establishment would have pushed back so hard and employed forcible feeding, which was basically torture, uh, to try and frighten the women to stop them campaigning for the vote. Um, Do you really think that they would have um, fought back so hard if it didn't matter? That's a very, very powerful point. Um, it's very inspiring to, to – I interview lots of historians on this. It's lovely to meet an activist who, but who draws all their inspiration and, and motivation from history. So that's great. Um, now, you've got a uh, – I think you've got a piece that you want to uh, perform that's from that's – from, and tell me where it's from. Yeah. So it, it's from the uh, new version of To Freedom's Cause because there'll be – in um, the reason that Emily Matters started, it started – Um, by accident, uh, because I took the play to the House of Commons to uh, support, actually, a campaign for a suffragette statue in in Parliament, uh, which was Emily Thornbury was uh, supporting that, was leading that. So it was all by chance. um, And this, I wrote this in 2015, this speech, I wrote it by the sea. 
And there's the idea, this is just an extract from it, but there's an idea of the waves of, of feminism, as it were, which I think, obviously, sitting by the sea and the waves that were... Uh, obviously, you know, the sounds of the waves and that feeling. Uh, and it's the idea that Emily's speaking in 1913, but she's reaching out to future generations. And it's a call to action, but a, a call to action as in that, that equality matters, the job isn't finished. And I think when we look around today with campaigns like Me Too, and there's um, some really interesting campaigns. Um, there's a young woman who has a campaign about um, sanitary products for uh, girls who are on low, uh, parents who are on low incomes, these kind of things. Um, there's still a lot to be done on a local and national and international level. So, yeah, I'll um, give it a go. Okay. <laughs> to be a suffragette takes courage. The prize of equality is our pearl. We are feminists and our noble struggle is for generations yet unborn. The powers that be may shame us, shun us and question our sanity. But we will never give in, no matter the cost. Onwards to victory. But we are also human, and I'm so very tired. They do not listen to reason, these charming men who will preserve the status quo by all means necessary. It is truly sickening that something that is so simple and clear can be rebutted by the egos of a few narrow-minded men who happen to hold the keys to the door of the mother of all parliaments, a door that has been closed to us for far too long. We will continue to knock, to petition, even though our fists bleed and bones are broken, we will not be bullied. Our voices will be heard. And we will continue to rise up, wave upon wave, in ever greater numbers until they silence us no more. I have suffered alongside my sister suffragettes, but we do it gladly because we trust that you will carry forwards that precious torch of democracy and freedom. Keep pushing until women and men are equal. When no child is told she is unworthy, that her voice simply doesn't matter because she is a girl, thank you. No surrender. How can people uh, stay in touch with your campaign or come and see you perform? Um, well, we're all across social media. So if you're on Twitter, it's at Emily Matters. Uh, on Facebook, we're actually the name of the play, which is at To Freedom's Cause. And we're also at To Freedom's Cause on Instagram, which I absolutely love. Um, yes, it's a really fantastic week. Some of the things I'll be doing, um, I'm going to be attending the very special event in Parliament on the 6th of February, which is the um, actual anniversary of the Representation of the People Act. So I'm very excited about that. And I'm due to actually perform the full speech um, at an event the next day uh, in Westminster. And um, looking ahead further in the year, there are going to be performances and I hope some performances of To Freedom's Cause in a new edition, which is very much about passing the baton to the next generation. So when you're in Parliament, where are we? 100 years, one third of MPs are women? 
yeah, just just over. So I mean that that shows you, in in the very heart of of our democracy, how much further we've got to go. Well, as you say in your wonderful speech that you've written for Emily, keep pushing. Hi, everybody. Just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I've got a little tiny favour to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favour. Then more people will listen to the podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.